0: Hello, my geeselings. This is Robinson Earhart, the mother goose, again, introducing another episode with Haim Gaithman. This should be the third episode. I am recording this introduction with the intention that it will be episode 21, but it might end up being episode 22 or who knows what episode it will end up being because Haim likes to look at these before I put them up to make sure that I haven't caught him making a mistake or saying something wrong. And in case that is the case, uh, right now on the the video, at least I will be typing some sort of uh, subscript, uh, clarifying whatever error was made. And he'll probably ask me to point out that I gave him no time to repair. Anyway, Haim is super important to me. As you know, if you have listened to any other episodes, he's a computer science, scientist, a mathematician, a probability theorist, a philosopher at Columbia university. He's also taught at the Hebrew university of Jerusalem and got his PhD at Berkeley from Alfred Tarski. And in this episode, it's, it's more of a, well, it's a meta episode, but not uh, meta in the terms of in terms of the podcast, it's not about the pod- podcast, but it's meta-philosophical in that we start off by talking about what philosophy is, and having talked about this plenty with Haim, he's really changed my ideas of of what philosophy is. And then for the for the most part of the podcast, we talk about what is mathematics, and he has a very idiosyncratic way of answering this question and one that has taken me a lot of time to understand, but just listening to this podcast episode again yesterday in preparation for releasing it and recording this introduction, it has made, it makes more sense to me now, now that I've heard it a bunch of times. And he's actually teaching a course with Justin Clark Doan on what is mathematics in the philosophy department at Columbia right now that I'm, sitting in on and his thesis basically is that to answer the question, what is mathematics, you shouldn't be seeking to answer questions like what are mathematical objects or how do we know about them? But the answer to the question is really, really concerns mathematics, historically speaking, and how it was developed, how it was used, who used it. Um, the technical developments over the the thousands of years since the Greeks, those sorts of things. And as you listen to the episode, you'll get a a better understanding of how he views this whole issue. Anyway, this was a, a wonderful conversation. I have one more that we recorded back in May. This one was recorded in May, even though it should be released sometime in October. And then Hopefully, even though I'm across the world in Stanford and he's in New York, we will continue to record some virtually. All right, I hope you enjoy this episode. I really did. I learned a lot from recording it with Haim. And let me know what you think. Now we're going to begin. Okay, I see already that you've got some books out here. That, yeah, this
1: that... is a, this is the most difficult subject of all the subjects you answered you asked me before.
0: Well, we'll get to we'll get to that subject later. I see you have Euclid's Elements, but the first thing that mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about today is when I came to Columbia to study philosophy. Mm-hmm. I had an idea of what philosophy was, and it wasn't fully formed, but I thought it was a way of answering questions. Yes. And you told me, when I asked you what philosophy was, that it was not at all about answering questions, and I found that very surprising. You told me instead that philosophy is about gaining insight. And I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about that yes. right now. So why why do you see philosophy that way?
1: Because the question presupposes already by posing a question, you have a lot of presuppositions there, and uh, by answering the questions, it is somewhat a legalistic point that uh, if you answer a certain question a certain way, you are already committing yourself to to something. For instance, uh, um, did you? Uh, did you, were you, when did you stop smoking? You cannot answer this question without agreeing that you smoked. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there, there are presuppositions to every question and some, okay. sometimes the very posing of the questions uses a terminology, which commits you to something.
0: So philosophy then can't just be about answering questions because it also has to be about, uh, phrasing them properly.
1: That is correct, but here we are already uh, presupposing that you, da, you do a brand of analytic philosophy. Okay. Now, now, there is a... So there
0: are other, I, I mean, I know the answer to this, but there are other types of philosophy the, than the, analytic?
1: Yes, there are philosophies that come and tell you what the world is. And uh, they Like makes, a
0: religious philosophy, maybe.
1: Uh, yes, or... Mostly, uh, if you you look at philosophy, philosophies you have uh, Greek philosophy, which is uh, our guideline guideline, but there are also Hindu philosophy, and it is simply a, a general reflection, which expresses an attitudes towards the world, and. Uh, the philosophy is a kind of an inquiry which is supposed to give you a taste of what the world is.
0: That's what the Greek and Hindu philosophies are like?
1: The, in, in a sense, it's any philosophy. It, it's okay. that. And you can start simply by declaring boldly that this is what you, what you will do and you start speaking your language. Now, it might be, if it's interesting enough, it is it, it may be worthwhile for the listener to learn your language, because if you the listener learns your language, the listener might gain certain important insights into life, into reality, into what's called the big words. Okay? Other kind of philosophy starts from, so to speak, a minimalist basis. It doesn't legislate, doesn't give you a terminology that compels you to follow the intuitions or to understand what somebody is saying.
0: One philosophy that comes to mind that might be of this sort is phenomenology?
1: Yes, So phenomena- but phenomenology already is within a tradition of culture. Philosophy is a certain basic attitude to what has been produced by the human race in the, in the, in the, in the area of thinking. That's all I can say, or the area of thinking, of presenting something. It sums up the intellectual history of the human race of part of a human race. That is philosophy. I mean, philosophy, the raw materials for philosophy is the history of the human thinking, of the human race, of how we we talk, how we think. This is a basic inquiry. And uh, not everything can be a subject of philosophy, although there have been attempts to do a philosophy of anything. Some areas are more naturally uh, given to philosophical analysis than the other than other areas something that
0: varzi um varzi a philosopher at columbia was telling me today Mm -hmm. we had uh, lunch he told me that he just gave a talk on the philosophy of finance in which he was talking about the sorts of objects that Mm -hmm. derivatives are Mm -hmm. and he derivatives being options futures these sorts of financial instruments and he told me this sort of stems from maybe concerns about what a $20 bill is. Because on the one hand, a $20 bill is just a piece of matter, Mm -hmm. like like a star or Mm -hmm. a rock or something. Mm -hmm. But in specific contexts, it means something very particular. And in other contexts, it doesn't. And so I just found it fascinating that there's a philosophy of finance, which had never occurred to me.
1: I, I don't know, to tell you the truth, I don't know exactly what he meant. I mean, philosophy of finance would be part of economics. Mm-hmm. And economics itself uh, struggles to become its own subject, so to speak, out of the, out of the financial history or the, the way humans exchange certain items with other items, giving them a value. So the raw material of economics, of economic theory would be the practices of the human race when it came to exchange of goods, to exchange of certain objects, to exchange of certain legal commitments like uh, signing an IOU and all kinds of legal uh, documents which commits you to produce or to compensate or to pay or to get paid and so on. So, so this is again, this is a summing up uh, the brute facts which underlie commerce, which are facts which go very back to the to very ancient civilization. I suppose uh, when it comes to gather hunters or previous, there would be no economics.
0: Mm. Right. When you say that Mm. philosophy has, as its raw materials, the history of human thinking, what that brings to mind for me is how I tend to answer questions from my friends or family about what philosophy is and what i'm doing in particular with regard to philosophy of math which what we'll we'll get to in a bit but i think of philosophy as i'm interested in it is looking at sort of the assumptions and the principles and the larger questions around pre-existing bodies of human knowledge so mathematicians go about their work tending not to think during their work week about what the number two is or what a function is or how we know about these purported objects and it's one task of philosophy to go into subjects like mathematics and then look at what really is going on the epistem- the epistemological questions the metaphysical questions if there are any, uh, to look at mathematical practice. And it's in this sense that I've come to understand what you meant by philosophy being a way of giving us insight, as opposed to trying to answer questions. I I
1: don't think that every subject is equally can be a subject of philosophy. I, I doubt that you can Make uh, speak about philosophy of baseball, for instance. You can describe the game and so on, but the philosophy would be very thin or artificial.
0: Right, but there, are, there are certainly philosophy of games in general.
1: Well, it depends. Again, uh, there is a theory of games. Uh, yeah, you can you can uh, speak about. Uh, games uh, in the sense of uh, that Wittgenstein has spoken about the language games and things like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, games just in general, I don't know.
0: But something else that you told me to substantiate your point that philosophy is not about answering questions is that all philosophical programs have failed. So, whereas well,
1: it's it's it, again, it's a very wide declaration. Some of them had partial results. I don't know in what sense you can say that uh, phenomenalism failed. Okay, okay. You, you, the, the this positive philosophy, they they themselves came to acknowledge that there are certain questions in which they couldn't carry out the program, and so on. So it, it has become a, a fact that th- certain attempts uh, were recognized as not leading to anything, but this was a very valuable lesson. And in a sense, the fact that a school can say, well, this, this presupposition and so on, we, cu- we couldn't make it, gives you a ground to treat that school more seriously or mm-hmm. give it bigger honors, if you can, in quotes, than other philosophy who by, who always argue that they were successful because and then they bring all kinds of arguments, why this is this. So an attempt which ends by an agreed failure is an important enterprise which reveals something. That means, in philosophy, the <clears throat> goal is not to succeed, but to gain insight. And some philosophies that want to, so- to show you that no matter what, they succeeded and so on, end up by giving twisted arguments in which to legalize their status. So, uh, one, one addition I would say philosophy <clears throat> of any subject should be related to subjects which have a definitive cognitive dimension
0: what do you mean by that? for
1: instance if you take a football it's a game you have to have good mass you have to have good instincts and so on but the cognitive as against, as against philosophy of science, for science by definition is a matter of cognition, of, of thinking, of something perhaps which is truth, of certain claims in which success means success in having new scientific results, new true results, and so on. I wouldn't say that... Uh, A physical game, which is extremely enjoyable and important and so on, is by itself a subject which has a strong cognitive element, because it is a subject in which you have a a lot of training to do, a lot of bodily feeling and so on. So you cannot speak a philosophy of the body or something like that unless you use philosophy in a very wide sense in which you say, my philosophy of life is, right. uh, you know, that, that kind of thing.
0: Right. So that brings us then to a topic very dear to your heart, and, which is mathematics. And one of the questions that I've found burning in my mind for some time is what is mathematics and that's a big question yes a huge question yes but and it encompasses many sub questions such as what are the objects of mathematics if there are objects what unifies mathematical practice how do we tend to or how do we acquire mathematical knowledge but when when you hear the question what is mathematics where do you start
1: I start by mathematics as a discipline which had an historical place which started at a certain year and okay. which we developed and changed during these years. The body, the whole big uh, body of mathematics as it developed during the years as part of the history of the human
0: race. Okay, so you first and foremost, when confronted with the question what is math, look at its development over time yes, and see look, how it was used. look
1: where you encounter math.
0: That's, that seems like a very common-sensical answer. Yes,
1: I mean, you must give you what is math. I don't want to give you an a priori answer or to give you uh, some clever trick or some formulation what it is. Or if it is a formulation, it should be rooted in pointing to, okay, you you look at what Euclid did, you look at what this did, then you can see here is math. Now in some areas, we would say the math is faulty or has to be corrected and things like that. But uh, definitely I think Euclid is a good point to start. Okay. Because uh, these were mathematicians or well aware of the need to give an account or some explanation, what they are doing.
0: Mm-hmm. When I think of the history of mathematics, the first thing I think of isn't even humans, but prehumans, or even today they do experiments on dogs or crows or yes. monkeys, and that seems to be a good place to think about where
1: well. I would say, I don't know if you if you will have a philosophy of it, but you will have a certain abilities which you will connect to mathematical abilities. I don't think there is a philosophy of math as it is conceived by chimpanzees. Right, I'm should, not
0: suggesting that, that there should be a philosophy of, uh, chimpanzee mathematics, but uh, their that, numerical abilities yeah. suggest how ours originated.
1: Well...
0: Or why no, ours originated. Well,
1: no, it's a, it's a useful point to uh, ask what are the mathematical patterns of recognitions because knowing certain math or being able practically to distinguish Nine pieces of cake from twelve pieces of cake.
0: Very important for me.
1: Yes, is is important for the animal that likes cakes, Mm -hmm. in that sense, or as can make choices.
0: And I think I mean it's probably important originally to keep track of your children or the eggs in your nest. Or any number of other things. Yeah. Well,
1: children, you would say if you don't know how many children you have. Yeah. You either must be a very uh, uh, king or leader who doesn't know or how many wives he has because he has thousands or hundreds or something like that. Yes. But uh, simply, if you say, if you give two. Hips, one heaps of, uh, which contains more pieces of food or more grains and so on. and the animal is given the choice going to this one or that one, you can see what are the mathematical abilities of animals, mm-hmm. which are not necessarily the more advanced. I mean you, you can do it uh, well, I don't know about birds, whether they are or not ad- are not advanced. Now there are all kinds of claims being about the intelligence of birds. But in any case, you can can actually conduct experiments in which uh, you see what the counting comparison, by by way of uh, counting a collection of discrete units which are, each one of them is more or less valued in the same way.
0: Mm -hmm. But so then... Going on to humans, presumably, and obviously this is conjecture because I'm not an archaeologist or a yeah. a psychologist, but I imagine that numerical literacy or numeracy arose, one, for, for commerce and trade, uh, yeah, it, that's how it was initially used. And actually,
1: I think it was yeah, this, this for sure, but it was uh, used in engineering, in construction and in the need to count uh, how many stones are needed for this and this, how many, raw, how much raw material, how, and also about value when you have to change one for the other and so on and so forth endlessly. And uh, these are all uh, practices in which you have a, some sort of scale of quantity with respect to a certain uh, kind of Certain kind, Unit, of, maybe. Yeah, no, certain kind of, yeah, uh, no, but certain kind of material objects like tiles, like uh, number of stones and things like that.
0: And then presumably, I mean, mathematics became an, uh, an abstract practice after that.
1: No, yeah. it the, the, the the math The abstraction might have come even without people noticing it. Uh, there's an ancient mathematics which deals with natural numbers, which consists of producing abacai and abacus mm-hmm. to come to simply to to enable a shopkeeper to make very fast calculations to know whether he lost, how much he lost, how much he gained, and things like that. And people with abaca and with knowledge how to manipulate an Abakai are now rare because you don't need it. But in the past, there were people who could do it just like, almost like in computational speed, you might say.
0: And why do you consider that abstraction? Just because?
1: Because Abakai, by themselves, they don't represent a- they themselves have no value. Their value is that you are enabled to uh, calculate how much you will gain or lose if you agree to a certain trade.
0: And it's independent of the objects that the yes, little yes. stones represent. Right.
1: Right. Whether, suppose you you sell for this and you get for this, and every one of these costs three coins. And every one of these you have to produce costume like that and so on. So you are a small shopkeeper. And you have to, at the end of the day, to, to make a very fast calculation how much you, what were you expended and how much you got. And the, how much you got, you have for the records of uh, this was sold by me at that, at that price, this I bought at that, at that price. Bookkeeping.
0: So it seems like, at least initially, based on the sort of story you're telling or way of presenting how mathematics was first used, mm-hmm. that it's at least on a very primitive level a way of organizing things, a way of performing calculations, a way of bookkeeping, to use your word, a way of uh, taking measurements. Yeah. Okay. So, so counting
1: that- how many uh, packages of sand will be needed in order to construct this structure in which sand is a component, or you have earth and sand or whatever they used uh, to to produce the pyramid. I mean, this was a huge engineering job. So all kinds of ancient engineering involved math.
0: Okay, so. This is the initial story uh, mm-hmm. before mathematics, I think, really became a discipline. But what? So, what's the next step uh, in in this sort of history that we're constructing?
1: Look, uh, if we if we go from if we in Greek, uh, Greek established not only math; it established philosophy. I mean, at least in the Western tradition. Uh, philosophy as a general subject begins there and it might be natural that they regarded their mathematical activity as part of a general view of the world so it was very natural for them to give a certain view of the world which is very much related to mathematical activity
0: I'm. I'm not sure. I totally understand what you mean here. Okay.
1: You know that there there has been Pythagorean, and there has been and there has
0: been Pythagoras. Pythag-
1: yes, but there was a school of Pythia- Pythagoreanism. Yes, and uh, they developed the technique of making a lot of calculations and estimates and uh, what we would call now arithmetic or, for instance, summation of an arithmetic series uh, or summations of series, uh, one to the th- uh, cube plus two to the cube plus four to the cube plus three to the cube and so on. And, uh, and they did it using geometrical models Okay. and using geometrical argument how to do that and multiplication is very easy to do because a multiplication is a product and you can which gives you essentially uh, not the area but the uh, number of squares in a rectangle in a discrete rectangle and uh, then it is obvious if you just uh, rotate the rectangle that a times b is equals to b times a because it's simply the same thing but just rotated like that so you had it from geometry and so they had the commutative law for addition and multiplication and the distributive law for uh, multiplication over addition right there from geometry
0: but you said that you said something about them viewing mathematics as as part of the world it was part of their philosophy
1: it wasn't part of the world it was yeah it was they took mathematics to give the basic form of physical reality in as much as physical reality can be captured in this way
0: well isn't that also i think how euclid viewed his geometry It, it wasn't necessarily it was, he viewed it almost more as physics than as No, math. I wouldn't say so. You wouldn't say that? No, definitely not. But I thought that he viewed the geometry that he was developing as his geometry was the geometry of the world.
1: That is true. It's The geometry was supposed to reflect, to give the basic properties of physical space. Right. Yes. It doesn't mean that physics... Right. This I would mean, be true of Archimedes in which kind of uh, realize that you can have the same kind of axiomatic method it can be applied also to theoretical physics. And he used uh, and developed a lot of models which were based on physics, and uh, he was a genius engineer at the same time that he was a mathematician.
0: But anyway, going back to the, the broader question, mm-hmm. how, what does this tell us then about what mathematics is? Uh, well,
1: yeah, mathematics for your
0: for the Pythagoreans, okay. the Greeks in okay. general, what does okay. what does talking about this tell us about what mathematics is?
1: Okay, so for them, mathematics gave the basic the basic properties of physical space, because they their mathematics was geometry, and it was an, a very uh, a very explicit idealization. That means you get the forms of the physical space by considering a certain idealization.
0: And is that Euclid or the Pythagoreans as well?
1: I think this... We don't have Pythagorean big mathematical tracts like we have Euclid. Okay. But they had their tradition. And there are stories about them. But the story of a really huge discipline, geometry, uh, two-dimensional and three-dimensional geometry, uh, is uh, given in the three volumes of Euclid's elements. And if you look at what Euclid does, you can see that they are defining the the mathematical entities as a kind of a limit case of an idealization of the actual physical objects. And you can see it from the definitions. So Euclid starts by definitions. There's a whole lot of definition, what is a point, what is a a what is a line, and what is a geometric figure, and so on. And you can see that they do it by idealizing the properties of a point and so on. So that's why I, I brought it. And here it gives a lot of a long list of definitions. Okay.
0: So for those who a point uh, is who, that for those who aren't uh, watching, Haim has taken out a flashlight and is now reading through Euclid's elements for me.
1: Okay. Uh, so a point is that which has no part.
0: Right. Okay. And that's obviously an idealization yeah. because there are no such things.
1: Yes. So, but they treated them. They didn't get whether there is or there is not. They gave you straight away the idealization.
0: So you're saying you're saying they're not um, asking philosophical questions yet. Asking, oh, what is the point? What-? Well, I don't
1: know that for them this was not also a philosophical questions. Okay. But these definitions is not the reason that Euclid is such a big classic book of mathematics. You can teach Euclid without having these definitions. This is not what gives what Euclid is known. Euclid is known by developing a very sophisticated and difficult mathematics, proving theorems and providing constructions using a straight edge and a ruler this was uh, their standard way of constructing. This was, so to speak, the rules of the game. That for them, a construction meant that you can uh, draw a circle with a given center and a given radius. Okay? Uh, so you have this, and then you have a straight edge. Am I clear?
0: Yes, yes, yes. We do that in uh, high school in yes. the United States.
1: Yes. You take this or the, a
0: protractor,
1: a protractor. Or, yeah, yeah,
0: that's what it's called.
1: This is the this is the English term. I knew I know the Hebrew one. The, is what a, is it in Hebrew? Mechoga, something which makes
0: circles. Oh, that's a nice word.
1: You know, but you you know you you have two legs and you put one leg here and then
0: and then you spin it around.
1: As, and, so you can uh, construct a circle and you have a, a straight edge. Uh, so this is the way they did it. And uh, in Euclid, the propositions, what, pro, what we call pro, what is called propositions, consists of claims, which is theorems. but there are propositions that this and this can be done which shows you how to make a certain construction. These are also propositions. So Euclid, the, the body of Euclid, the way why it is so impressive, is the list of propositions and the way it derives it from the axioms.
0: So, two things now have mm-hmm. come up for me that we've mentioned, or two things that I've gotten out of what we've discussed so far, mm-hmm. is that mathematics originated as a way very roughly, of organizing information, and then
1: organizing the world.
0: Organizing Not the in, world. Yes. Okay. By organizing the world. Oh, I mean, certain
1: aspects of right, the world.
0: Right. The tiles or or money exchanges. Money. I've like just or using packages in, or, information very loosely, okay. and then the second thing that comes to mind is now with Euclid, uh, this is becoming more formal. And also more abstract.
1: Yeah, that's, that's true. But, uh, the, the, the actual engineering consists pails of water, pails, how oh, many pails of sand and so on, how oh, many, many cubic, uh, 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 cubic measures of this material or this material. They were engineers, mm-hmm. those who constructed the pyramids.
0: So do you want to... Re- is there more to say about Euclid right oh, now? Oh, yeah. That's, that's, well, I know that there's plenty more to say about Euclid in general, but in the context of this question, what is mathematics, is there more to talk about Euclid right now? Euclid or we is, is, is,
1: Euclid is uh, the great example. You, you can... You know, uh, the. I think what I'm claiming now is an actual fact. I can... I verified it once. I don't know that I have uh, the, the souls there, but... Uh, In uh, Britain, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, Euclid was used as a textbook for geometry. And uh, I, I think I gave you this example. You cannot imagine that any physical science, any natural science, could have used at the beginning of the 20th century a textbook that was written at the time of Aristotle.
0: Right. Well that that brings into light mm. another peculiar l- l- quality l- of l- mathematics l- l- yes. which you've to, to, you, to quote you, yes. uh, there is no phlogiston or phlogiston yes. in mathematics. So the natural sciences go through revolutions in which whole swaths of information are, or theories are abandoned, mm-hmm. whereas mathematics does go through sort of fads and trends and areas of inquiry are sort of abandoned, but once something is proven, it's proven.
1: Well, that's not completely precise.
0: Well yeah, I'm not I'm not going for complete no, precision. No, 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 I
1: want to make it precise. Okay. Because from our point of view, and I think we are justified, the proofs in Euclid, some of them are defective proofs. That means they omit, they use various reasonings which is not given in the axioms. And uh, they assume that you can, for instance, move a triangle until it comes to a certain place. They give all kinds of arguments which are not guaranteed in the axioms.
0: Well, I'm not saying that people can't have made mistakes that will be corrected, yeah, but, but once something is proven in mathematics, yes. then it can't be unproven so to that,
1: speak that is correct
0: and that means that sense, i don't no i don't
1: still. i don't know look this is an empirical claim uh, there is no published textbook in mathematics which would simply will be thrown and say this is all nonsense right okay i know there are certain counterexamples. And uh, I wonder if you realize what is a good counterexample to that.
0: You're asking me if I can come up with a good counterexample.
1: The, the the author of a book in geometry, which is nowadays completely valueless because the whole, the, all the proofs are incorrect.
0: Huh. The I name is like- Hobbes. Oh no! I wouldn't have guessed that. Yes,
1: so Hobbes was a very smart guy, and he was a very. Uh, his first name is John, right?
0: John. Thomas Hobbes. Oh, Thomas Hobbes. John Locke. Okay. okay. John Locke, Thomas Hobbes.
1: T- okay, Thomas Hobbes. So Thomas Hobbes was a very uh, elegant writer, and he had the a- Leviathan. Was yeah, yeah. yes. And uh, and uh, and one of the establishers of political philosophy. Okay. What is less known is that he wrote books in in geometry. Hobbes came late in rather late in life. Uh, after he studied other things and so on, he happened to come upon Euclid. And then he opened it, and he saw the proofs, and says, this is marvelous, this is incredible, it was so you can do. And then he started working, and he said, well, I have a theorem which how to trisect the angle, an angle, the, you know, an angle, and, and so on and so forth. There have been the well-known problems of antiquity, the doubling of the cube, and the trisection of the angle. And there was uh, another I forgot the, the the three classical problems of of geometry um, so section of the angle doubling of the cube this was
0: I can look it up.
1: Look it up. What was the uh, the third one? It is uh,
0: three classical problems.
1: Oh no 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 uh, the the circle producing squaring the circle c- squaring the circle producing yeah. the a square whose area is the same as the area of a given circle.
0: Mm-hmm. Doubling the volume of a cube.
1: Yes, this is all you. Well, you suppose you have two. Uh, two altars you sacrifice
0: two altars
1: yes two altars you sacrifice on them and then you want to build an altar whose volume is double the, the sum of the volumes of the two altars this was a kind of the, the story of that but it's yes the doubling of the cube the, that means f- find a cube whose volume is double of the volume of the cube, find, the uh, construct, this, this was supposed to be geometrical constructions, so you give me the lengths of uh, the side of a cube, and using a straight edge and the protractor, you have to construct another, cu- another cube which whose area is uh, double the area of this cube okay so you what you are given you are given a segment and you have to construct another segment the segment will be the size of the cube and the same goes for squaring the circle and the same going for uh, dividing an angle to three equal angles
0: and so the your point was just that Thomas Hobbes thought he might have solved some of these. He was but, sure
1: that he solved but one, but he didn't.
0: So yeah, it all had to be gotten rid of.
1: Uh, it's an interesting because I looked into what he did, and it's very very. It's not. It's not at all clear.
0: Well, he was dumb.
1: He wasn't dumb. He was a sharp guy, and he thought that he could do. You do it like that. No, no. The, 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 there's an involved construction there, but it's some somehow it is not correct. And it's difficult to see because it is a little bit vague what exact, how exactly it works. Eventually, it became a kind of a game almost between Thomas Hobbes and another mathematician whose name escapes me, was a serious mathematician, British mathematician. You say, this is nonsense. You didn't do it. And then they asked for the French Academy to judge. It wasn't uh, whether and after a long uh, debate and so on they came and judged and the verdict went against Hobbes but Hobbes was also a very ambitious person and his goal was really to become famous by that time the whole this story was not very interesting to him because he published his writings on political philosophy and Leviathan and made himself a worldwide name. Mm-hmm. So he got his, uh, uh, his own satisfaction from becoming famous and well-known from his political writings and for the nice style. I mean, he, he, the style is incredible.
0: All right, I'm going to have to pull you back to Euclid okay. again. Okay. Or so, maybe, uh, are we moving on from Euclid?
1: No, no, no. So. Now, in Euclid there are defects, but it was recognized that this was the right way to do it, and this final solution came, or the final uh, crowning of this work came in the work of Hilbert, from
0: uh, 1891, when he gave a complete axiomatization, of not geometry. only of
1: this geometry but all kinds of other geometries, hyperbolic and he, he, he gave he gave examples that these axioms he, he gave counterexamples to the, showing that these axioms do not imply this and a lot of other meta claims about the system, but essentially he gave a way of axiomatization of Euclid. Since that there are other axiomatizations of
0: Euclid, but again, so <clears throat> so what this tells me, though again, is that we're moving from just organi- organizing the world to giving various ways of organizing abstract information.
1: It's a form in of axiom. It is an idealist systems. form, which is completely precise, which admits of no vagueness or not clearness, which goes with empirical science because it is not an empirical science
0: even though it began it
1: began look they one. thought the pythagoreans thought that the world was rational this is a, they discovered the uh, when
0: you say that they thought the world was rational what do you mean it,
1: the world is something that is given uh, they had a the notion of rationality and uh, according to them uh, a rational quantity was other natural numbers, which is a discrete a collection of discrete items, if you wanted, or uh,
0: fractions. So when you say that the world is rational, or they believe that the world is rational, they believe that all quantities could be expressed as, as a ratio ra- of two natural numbers?
1: That is correct. Okay. But then they discovered that uh, the diagonal of... a uh, square was not rational. It was not
0: rational. So it could not be expressed as a ratio of two yes, integers. Yes, and
1: the, that brought a big uh, crisis, and there are all kinds of legends and stories about it, uh, most of them probably dubious, that uh, one story goes that they killed the one who first published it because it shows that there was something wrong with their whole conception of the world. But as a matter of fact, this irrationality and that is very much is well-treated in the volumes of Euclid by... Eudoxus. Eudoxus. Eudoxus yeah. is, is the one that does it. So the part of Euclid, which is impressive, is that it's extremely high sophisticated mathematics and very difficult proof. Okay, No question about it. Ingenious, difficult proof. That is what gives it the aura of being the classic work in mathematics.
0: But what does it tell us about what mathematics is then, in a phrase?
1: It is a, it is a system basing, based on a certain idealization, which admits of incontroversial proofs, secure proofs which gives you a certain way of organizing
0: the space. To me while I'm sympathetic to a lot of that. Well
1: they thought the big big, uh, uh, point came in when they started looking into it and found and asked if there are other ways of organizing the same material which is not Euclidean geometry and this brings you to the discovery of non-Euclidean geometry. So the point that uh, Kant made, that uh, these are a priori, they are synthetic, because they involve a certain geometrical view, they are not purely logical, and I think Kant was right, you need axioms which are not logical axioms, but Kant was wrong in thinking that this was the only way of doing it. So there are other ways of doing it, Mathematics consists of extending this method, which is completely precise, which has no vagueness in its empirical sciences, doesn't depend on experiment, extending it to cover more and more domains, and more and more possibilities. So you have uh, numbers which are commutative, and then you use the uh, algebra, uh, rings or fields which are not commutative, and then sometimes you go to even very, very abstract uh, systems, and all of them can be treated as a piece of mathematics. So it is... uh, So
0: what is it that unifies the fields and the rings and what Euclid did and...
1: The method of... The point is, is that they share certain properties. For instance, there is a commutative field, or what you're, used to be called the skew field, which is not commutative. Multi, a, commu, a field is, by definition, some. Uh, uh, well, uh, there is a definition of a field. This is a, uh, a collection of. Uh, a domain. A, a domain. Two operations. With two. With two operations, plus and and multiplication. Identity element. And, and uh, yes, identity elements for both of them. So, like a group, you have this group and this group, and and so on. This is a kind of a structure of this form, and there are axioms, and you derive other from these axioms using these axioms. You, divide, you derive derive. Now, this can become very, very abstract, but still the method persists. That means logic itself can be treated in this way as a mathematical system. And in logic, there are different logics, and and you might have debates about what logic is, uh, whether it should be intuitionistic or non-intuitionistic or finite, uh, in the Hilbert, in Hilbertian sense, only actual infinity, and so on. But when you go and see how the debates go on, and what the people are doing, all of them are doing mathematics. So, I can so be, you say that all I of... can be a non-intuitionist, or somebody who is completely. Uh, Uncommitted as whether one should be or not be an intuitionist. An
0: intuitionist is what?
1: Intuitionist is a a logic in which... the. Well,
0: intuitionistic logic is a logic, but intuitionism itself is a foundational philosophy of mathematics.
1: Well, that you use a logic, which is intuitionistic logic in the
0: proof. Right, but what they, they think of mathematics as being something that's in the mind, roughly.
1: It is in the mind, no matter what mathematics is.
0: No, many people think that mathematics. Well, so you're making the assumption that mathematics is a is a practice, but other people might say that mathematics is what's existing in some other universe, a Platonic realm, and you're dismissing that immediately.
1: No, I mean this is just a gross look.
0: Right. The, I, look, I, that's put, all... put
1: it like that. First of all, the Greek didn't consider the possibility that there will be non-Euclidean geometry. Right. Okay, so from that point of view, uh, it, it is, if you want, you can say they, they consider that there are Platonic... Uh, uh, Platonism is a kind of, it goes nicely with this because its is, it, it is a realm which is obtained by idealization and which gives you in this idealization certain properties which you might want to say are the essence of the the essence of a line it it it, it is a length which has no breadth and no depth mm-hmm. okay some essential properties or some and you can from this you can use platonic forms as your philosophy of mathematics and you might want to say that uh, in Euclid the straight lines were part of a platonic form, or platonic entities okay, some entities in which everything is precise and which is, uh, which is what we call platonistic platonic form, but there is no commitment to viewing it in, there should be, or there should be no commitment to viewing mathematics in this way, okay. and every and those who think that there is a big problem with mathematic objects simply don't realize that uh, mathematics doesn't the object, the Platonist mathematics is not the mathematics of mathematicians today.
0: So what I'm learning from you right now mm-hmm. or realizing based on what you're telling me mm-hmm. is that when I'm asking the question, what is mathematics, uh-huh. the way that you're answering it is by explaining to me the nature of the practice. Yes. Whereas when I was initially asking the question, when I when I initially asked the question, what is mathematics, the... It's,
1: an, it's what is done by mathematicians.
0: Right. That's not what I had loaded into the question. What I had loaded into the question mm-hmm. is what are the objects? How do we know about them? And I sort of expected your answer to. I,
1: I this is a bad question, right? I, I, I think it's a bad question. Look, suppose so, you so ha- tell
0: me. Tell me why it's a bad question to ask what numbers are
1: because the numbers or what
0: sets are okay or what triangles are
1: okay uh imagine an abacus okay okay on the abacus are various symbols you know they are uh, they are the the stones or beads or whatever the beads. you use beads and the beads has various colors and so on and uh, you you might as well say that there are numbers written on the on the beads and so on sure. and the whole function of these beads is like having uh, uh, what do you call it in uh, when you in a casino you get chips yes. with with this and you ask, what is the chip?s And they say, you you now start worrying what kind of entity this is. A, a chip.
0: I think that's a worthwhile question to ask.
1: No, what is a chip? A chip is a physical item, and so on. But, but that goes chip... back
0: to what Varzi and I were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. in that a chip is not just a physical object. It, I mean, on some level it is, but in certain contexts, the chip, like a casino it means something, it has it has yeah. a value, whereas yeah. on Mars, if we discovered a chip there, I mean, it wouldn't have that, that same that, meaning.
1: That is correct. That is certainly correct. So are natural numbers. Natural numbers are the same, uh, get their meaning in the way they are being used. This is what gives them their meaning. It's not that some sort of entities like a piece of stone that you rev- that on Mars it is not what it is on Earth.
0: Right, well that is what some people think is that yeah. there are no- objects that are numbers. But yes, you, but, but,
1: I, but the whole question is ridiculous because numbers if by ob- objects they mean some physical object their ontology is a completely different ontology from the ontology of mathematics in which the numbers themselves as gets their whole meaning and their whole status in the way that they figure out and they are used in the system. It is like in a casino that the chip is much more than the physical object because the chip has a value and you can move the chip from here to here and push it there and bet on it and so on.
0: When you phrase it that way, though, Mm -hmm. you strike me as a structuralist about mathematics, in which mathematical objects are sort of the idealizations of their properties. So, the number two isn't an object, it's just whatever is second in a progression.
1: But but I don't... that might be also, but this is not the only way in which you can do it. You can do it in many ways. The natural numbers come out, yes, if you want to speak it in the context of a progression, yes. In the context of a commutative group or an ordered group, in a commutative group or an ordered group, you have another. So these same numbers appear in commutative fields, non-commutative fields, and so on. So the structure itself should be addressed from this wide point of view the trouble with philosophers particular philosophers of mathematics said oh no the whole thing is just structure now let us give what is a structure and they start getting into the same old difficulty as before
0: right hmm.
1: said so they want to give uh, some sort of uh, some sort of th- they can handle it right this is stone age ontology you know
0: <laughs> mm. so <laughs> you, the- you
1: know what the uh, johnson said i I told you the story.
0: He, something about kicking a rock.
1: Yes, I mean, uh, Sam Johnson, the the one who wrote the English Dictionary, the great guy, uh, 18th century, 17th, 18th century. And uh, he had about... Uh, Bishop Berkeley, and this, Bishop Berkeley, an idealist thinks uh, there is no physical reality; it's all ideas in the in the brains of people or in the minds of people. And since we must have something which is there, even if people are not; they are all uh, uh, ideas in the brain of God, of God. Mm-hmm. So Berkeleyan philosophy, okay, and so. Sam uh, Sam Johnson was was uh, told about it, and he said, "I refute him thus," and he gave a, gave a kick to a stone. Mm. So, for an object is something that you can kick around, and okay. and, and 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 initially it is the same intuition. Mm-hmm. An object is something that you m- must have causal relation; must be able to grab it; it must be able to hit another object. How can you know about such things that have no causal relations? Right. There are no causal relations. Well, that
0: goes to my next question: Is how do you answer uh, epistemic challenges about mathematics? Yes, because so we know. We, because we know we know that uh, if we take this book and we take that book, they make two books yes. from experience. But then. How are we able to prove or say that we know that such claims hold generally? And then how are we able to make such claims as uh, the continuum because is you know, larger but, than the size of...
1: That is a di- that is a different step. Of
0: the natural numbers.
1: That is a different step. My dear, this is a different step. Well,
0: the idea is that these these can be verified empirically, in theory at least. Uh, no, questions about intense. the books that one plus one equals two, or we have two objects if we hit, but we can't do the same thing but when we're this talking is not about infinite one, collections.
1: But this is not what one plus one really means.
0: So what does it really mean then? And how do we know that? How do we really know that one plus one equals two, if it's not insight into some abstract realm? And obviously, I'm happening? playing yes. devil's advocate here. Yes,
1: obviously, and <laughs> uh, and and I have to answer you. And that is that uh, you. I, I'll give the Frege answer, although I don't agree with it, because in principle, that there might be an arithmetic which is completely different. Had the empirical world be radically different, okay?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But uh, when you teach children mathematics. You teach them using physical models. okay? You, you, count, you, you give them the practice of counting. okay? But the meaning of 3 plus 5 equals 8 is not the, is not, it doesn't mean that if you have 3 marbles here and 5 marbles here and you take the both of them and put them into a box and then you open the box there will be 8 marbles. This is not the meaning of that. The meaning is an abstract meaning. The meaning is that if these numbers are you are uh, objects, abs- they are, they are, That is true that they are abstract objects, but they are abstract objects that are used in the organization of the world. So their meaning comes from the meaning of the way they function in the system, like the meaning of a chip in a casino comes from the way it functions in a casino. It's not just the, 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 the physical symbols which is used.
0: So, then how do we learn about these abstract objects? We learn
1: because these are the rules of our language. These are the rules of our thinking. You learn it the way you learn a native language. That's where you know it. And this So, in that sense. You don't need to have a causal relation. The relation is much deeper than that. This is the way we think.
0: So it's closer, in a sense, to learning how we ride a bike than it is learning that it's raining. I mean, we learn about uh, numbers sort of by doing mathematics and by thinking in a certain way. We don't learn about mathematics by peering into an abstract
1: realm. The the analogy there is not riding a bicycle, but
0: speaking
1: a native language. How do you learn the, the, how do you know that uh, Tom is good and ugly is equivalent to Tom is good and Tom is ugly?
0: But uh, from experience, the, and perhaps no, no, from some wiring in the brain.
1: Like. No, by being embedded in a... In, right, a, well, that's in what experience e- meant. Well, but, this is not experience the with the world. This is an experience by interacting with other
0: human beings. Well, the world, that's part of the world. Okay,
1: fine. If you want to have that, that's, that's I do fine. want to have that. No, because it's a human institution.
0: But there's a, there's a, a disanalogy between these two cases that's very important, which is... There isn't something objective in a sense about the human language. It's still something that is arbitrary and up to uh, evolutionary accident. But two plus two equals four is is not like that. There's that something is, objective about it. That is true. So how do you address this disanalogy?
1: Okay. Since you know you you recognize the idealization that involves inducing natural numbers, okay? you can see that this is you recognize the, the, you recognize the validity of such statements just by thinking of them or by deriving them from other statements which, whose validity has been established before eventually you will need a proof so either they are self-evident almost an axiom or you need a proof that's all
0: okay that I that I, I can accept and so we've gotten a couple of things out of this conversation so mm-hmm. far one we've we've described the practice of mathematics using history a bit as something that relies on proofs, uh, comes from or builds theorems based on initial assumptions. It's a way of organizing material in the world. This is axiomatic method. Right. And we've also then talked a bit about what mathematics isn't, uh, what its objects aren't, uh, and how we know about it, which were some of my other questions. The last thing that I'd like to ask about today is in discussing this question in the past you've liked to use the the example of tiling problems to explain what mathematics is and i to
1: explain the beauty of
0: mathematics okay so you don't you don't uh, view them as a good example for Describing what mathematics is.
1: Mathematics can be beautiful or not beautiful.
0: Okay, well, let's let's. I guess the last few minutes, then talk about one tiling or a tiling problem and how it shows what mathematical beauty is.
1: Okay, so look. So what's a tiling problem? Okay, shall I, I? I cannot. Well, okay.
0: You can describe it. Okay, I could you understand
1: have. It. Uh, okay, so this would be come to the presentation at Cornell. Yeah. Okay. So imagine a board of Ten times ten. So a sentence. square board. A square board divided into one hundred s- little squares. Yes. The size, the s- the sizes of the board are squares. Uh, are uh, segments of uh, length. Each segment is divided into ten equal segments. Right. Well, segment. we can
0: just imagine a chessboard sort of construction. No, I want ten times ten. Okay, the, but the, ten times ten.
1: 10 times, like a chessboard by 10 times 10. A board of 10 by 10.
0: And no coloring or coloring? No, nothing. Nothing at this point, just 100 squares. You give
1: give away the whole thing.
0: Uh, Nobody has any idea. You are
1: a spoiler.
0: Nobody has Mm -hmm. any idea. No, no,
1: no, no. no. Keep going. Okay, now the point is, now you have dominoes. Every domino consists of two squares arranged in a rectangle, but the size, the length is twice as much as the breadth, right? Mm-hmm. So it's divided. And the tiling is a covered, is a covering of the board in which every tile covers two squares of the board. There's no overlap between tiles, and tiles don't go beyond the boundaries of the board, okay? Sure. Now, it's very easy to tile a board of 10 by 10, by tiling first of all, say the first row five tiles, five tiles, five tiles, five tiles, and so on, and you get the tiling of the board. Right. Yes. Or you can another one, the the columns, five tiles, five tiles a column, and yes. you get the tiling of the
0: because board. Because five five tiles times two equals ten spaces. Ten ten squares and Right. You, you-
1: that's all. Now I suppose I mutilate the board by omitting, by cutting out one of the squares. The square that is being cut can be in any place of the board. So in the picture, it will appear like white space.
0: So there are 99 squares now. Then
1: obviously, they cannot be tiled, because right. every tile covers two squares, and therefore there must be an even number of squares, and here there's odd number of squares. You, this cannot be tiled. This is trivial. Yes. Now suppose I mutilate the board by taking out two tiles. Now you have 98. And the question, so the argument from uh, uh, from the uh, being that requires an even number of squares doesn't, the previous argument, trivial, doesn't work here because the number of square is still, uh, uh, the, it, there are, the number of them is an even number. The number of the But square. you
0: can't just easily go down anymore yes, or across Yes, Yes, you
1: can, that is correct. And the question is can in general this be also
0: Can in general what uh, be, this also? be tiled? If it's has If it's an even number, can it in general be tiled? Right. That's the question. Provided right. it's not a complete board. Right. Okay. And we already know that if it's an odd number of tiles, I'm,
1: yes, it can't okay. be tiled.
0: Okay, an odd number of squares. Okay,
1: so the, the the standard example which you give is you take a corner, one corner of the board out, and then you cut out the the diagonal corner at the other end, and okay. and you can this board be tiled? Yes. And you do, it's very difficult question to, to answer.
0: To prove in pure mathematics, yes,
1: in pure mathematics, you have to prove or to prove or to even to find an answer, the right answer, okay? Because it's 98. Now there's an the ingenious idea. You color the board like a chess board, but here it is a board of 10, 10 times 10. Okay. And the you cover you you suppose you. Uh, color it uh, red and black or something sure. like that because the white will be used for the, the blank the, 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 for the mutilated square which is emitting. Yep. so you have two colors now if you look at the diagonal you see that you will have the same color in both ends at both ends if it's like a chessboard in a chessboard, it's obvious, but it's true for any board, which has an even number side, even yes. number, that it will be the same color. Every tile, on the other hand, must cover adjacent squares, right. which will have different colors.
0: In this case, the, then you have 48 the, red squares and 50 black squares. Yes,
1: and then you cannot, therefore, so this is this is a this is a conclusive argument. Now, this is an ingenious trick. And the ingenuity comes from the fact that, first of all, the original question didn't refer to colors. I added another dimension to the whole setup and induced another factor here, and this factor helps to solve a problem in whose statement this factor did not exist. And this is a very known technique in mathematics. You take a certain mathematical entity, you modify it by adding an additional parameters or additional, and you answer a problem which relates to the original entity without the additional machinery. You impose on it additional machinery and you solve it. And you don't need actually the additional machinery for stating the problem. The problem and the answer make sense without the additional machinery. The additional machinery shows that you cannot do it, that something is not doable. This is the beauty of it. And uh, the beauty comes from a high satisfaction, which is epistemic satisfaction, as if you have here something which is blurred somewhat blurred and you don't know what it is going, what is going there and how it is and so on and so forth. And all of a sudden, you say, okay, now look, shift a little bit your head, go like this, and you put lights on it, ah! you see the whole thing. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful.
0: So beauty in mathematics with this is
1: It's is it is a simplicity ingenious. genius epistemic trick which gives you an epistemic satisfaction.
0: So it's something, it has to do with encountering the unexpected? Yes. It has to do with uh, but it, it simplicity is and elegance?
1: Elegance, but the point is that what the goal is, epistemic clarity. So it all operates in the epistemic clarity domain. And that is why it's beautiful. We, we are satisfied that it is, it is so satisfying. We are amazing. It, we see it is amazing, ingenious, and so on. We have a nice feeling about it.
0: Are there other aspects to mathematical beauty that don't figure into this particular I problem? Think,
1: I don't think so.
0: Okay, so it all reduces to this epistemic...
1: Beauty, yeah. Now, sometimes... The, the establishment of an additional way of looking. You establish a very complicated additional organization, which can take years in, but then this additional organization helps you to solve scores of problems which were opaque before. Hmm. So it is here, it is a little trick in a game, and you see it in five minutes. These five minutes can be translated into five years into developing an additional structure which you can be imposed on the additional... Pro- I'm sorry. It's okay. Which, which you can impose on the, additional, on the original problem so that you can save, uh, give an account which solves a whole list of problems which are otherwise difficult. This is what category theory does.
0: So, this actually, I think, brings us back to my first question of the evening. So, we talked about what mathematics is as a practice, and we've now done a little bit of philosophy of mathematics, which is if philosophy is about bringing insights to aspects of human cognitive activity, Mm -hmm. we've just described what is beautiful about mathematics. So that's sort of what one, one thing that philosophy can contribute to mathematics.
1: Now not every problem in mathematics can be solved in a beautiful way, even in category theory. And the hardest problem in mathematics uh, are without... in, let's say, classical mathematics, which is mainly mathematics in which algebra, calculus, geometry, and things like that, not logic, not set theory. Set theory is a different area altogether. But uh, traditional mathematics, like the Riemann conjecture, uh, or hard problems in the calculus, or differential equations, and so on, might require the use of computers to solve the problem, or to an, some sort of organization in which you rely on other, other results that you take for granted. Okay, Prop- there are all kinds of tricks, probabilistic methods, and things like that, that that essentially it uh, you you obtain as given some brute facts which you don't go into. And these are ugly solutions. But ugly solutions have solved many problems where there's (laughs) no other solutions.
0: Like Apery's proof, right? Yes.
1: And then this was a proof that 1 over 3 to the one over three plus one over three squared plus one over three to the five. Uh, wait a minute. Let me. Uh, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. One over one plus one over two to the third plus one over n uh, three to the third. The 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 reverse third powers of one over n. Uh, squared, where n goes from 1 to infinity. This is an irrational number.
0: Yeah, that sounds difficult.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, and the proof is the proof, this is a big achievement of Euler, he gave the example and he gave a proof which was defective but his answer was correct. And from this answer it follows immediately that it is irrational. And uh, and there are other problems like that, and uh, these are up to this very day is not solved by any of the elegant methods.
0: Hmm. It's only solved by a brute method.
1: No, Apéry is not. It's an ugly solution. Right, it's that's a, why I said brute. It's not. It's not a group methods. No,
0: a, I said brute. Brute. Yes, by yeah. brute force. Yeah. It
1: takes. It's. It's. Ramanujan, if you have, if you know the name, had intuitions into these kind of problems. This is a kind of uh, results in mathematics which was done by uh, Hardy and Littlewood in the British school and so on. Very complicated infinite products, infinite uh, sums, all kinds of ratios involving the number pi and all kinds of things, tricks, integration and so on. Very hard problem, very hard solutions, and they are not—they are not beautiful. That's all. This is a cla- the, but but the computers which are now being used to solve problems like the four-color problem, and Tom Hales' p- problem, uh, they are um, even uglier than that because you mm-hmm. you 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 give part of the solution to a computer which you take without understanding have no conceptual access to the problem itself, except, of course, you know how the computer works. Right. So if somebody has intuitions about... That's a huge
0: epistemic problem.
1: Yes, but look, it depends. If you are the programmer of the computer, then you might get a big satisfaction because you have your own intuitive access. Right. And then you say, oh, that's a beautiful uh, uh, program. That's a beautiful code. Take a code which is written, I don't know, uh, 200 lines of codes and say that's a beautiful code. I wouldn't be able to say that's a beautiful code, but uh, somebody who is a programmer, who has his own aesthetic criteria and what is a beautiful code and what is not a beautiful code, can say it. Because, you see, the programmer has a kind of intuitions which gives him epistemic access to areas for which I don't have epistemic access. So he already operates in a different domain than the mathematician who wants a solution to the problem.
0: Right. Okay, Professor, it's time for me to take uh, the dog out. Okay. So, um, before you take those off, though, thanks again so much. These have been. Okay, sure. This is the fourth one we've done, and they've all been so fun to do. So, thank you so much.
1: Yeah, it was fun for me. Okay.
0: I have recorded this about 10 times because i'm just so bad at asking for help but if you could like subscribe comment on whatever medium you're consuming this nascent fledgling podcast on that would be so helpful because the best thing for helping me grow this podcast at this point is making it at least appear that i have an audience so thank you for listening and thank you for supporting me